My first love was the cleverest girl and the prettiest girl and the wittiest girl around. She was an absolute babe, at least I thought so. Her name was Abigail, and I was in love. And uh, we would uh, hang out together, but this was sort of in the age before uh, mobile phones, so I used to phone her up, and we'd organize for dates together. Sometimes we, we'd go out to parties together. Uh, sometimes we'd just sort of hang out at home, and uh, what we'd love to do is we'd just sit on the sofa together, and I, uh, smooth mover that I am, I'd sort of put my arm around her and sort of stroke her uh, long hair. I was in heaven. <laughs> Abigail and I were four years old. <laughs> and she was the first love of my life. And I guess most of us here, maybe not everybody, but most of us, we will be able to think of the first love of your life. Whether that was a, a two-way thing and you had an actual relationship with this other person, or, or whether it was just a sort of one-way fantasy thing and you loved them but they didn't return the love. Whether it was a, a childhood thing like Abigail, or, or whether it was an adult thing, like my uh, first sort of serious girlfriend as an adult, age 18, who over the course of our on-off relationship, I think she dumped me three times. Uh, and I'm not bitter, obviously. Um, and that really is the thing. Whatever your current relational status, whether you're married or divorced or dating or single or anything else, what every single one of us here will have discovered is that no human being can ever perfectly fulfill all our need for love all of the time. No one can. Even if the person that you first properly fell in love with is now the person that you are married to, you will have discovered that your spouse is not this sort of perfect, ideal love machine. And if you haven't discovered that, come and have a word with me later, because I'll put you straight. Now, in the evening service, uh, this, this sermon series called First Love, uh, in the evening service, it's going to be a three-week series, and sort of the next two following weeks are going to be all focused sort of more specifically about dating. But here at the 11 a.m., we're just having it as, if you like, a sort of one-off series uh, and looking at the biblical overview of both marriage and singleness. And then if you want to hear the bits more, sort of more specifically about actually dating, can I encourage you the next two Sundays to head to the 6 p.m. service rather than to this one. But as I speak uh, about what the Bible says uh, about marriage and about singleness, I am aware that there are all sorts of different relational situations amongst us here in the church. And I'm also aware that on all sorts of issues, uh, to pick the first three I can think of, uh, homosexuality, remarriage, internet dating, and all sorts of issues, there will be a variety of views amongst us. I love, um, I love Jesus when he is, uh, you may remember the story, when he's talking uh, to the woman that's caught in the act of adultery. It's in John chapter 8. Uh, and Jesus says, you'll remember, he, he said, he is without the first stone, uh, sin, he is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And slowly, all these men, they drop their stones, they walk away, they realize that they have sinned, they can't cast the far, first stone. And so it's just Jesus and this woman caught in the act of adultery left. And Jesus says these words to her. He says this, he says to her, has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus doesn't condemn. He doesn't look down at her and tell her she's inferior to him, but neither does he condone. He doesn't say, oh, it's fine. You can do what you like, fine to go and sleep around. That's no problem. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. 
And I think that is a really helpful balance for us this morning in this area that is so sensitive, not condemning, but not condoning either. I stand here this morning as a sexual sinner. I come to you not as Jesus without sin, but I come to you and I'm speaking to you as one sexual sinner, speaking to other sexual sinners. There should be no condemnation. But it is right for us all, for you, for me, it's right for us to sit under God's Word and specifically to hear Jesus' Word to us as we look at this passage in Matthew 19. And that may mean challenge for us because Jesus doesn't condone sin. And when we look at this passage in front of us, we see at the start, right at the top, verse 3, that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they come and ask Jesus a question. And the question is, could a man divorce his wife for any reason? You know, if her looks faded, if she burnt the supper, if he fancied somebody else, could he just divorce her for any reason? You know, it was known in those times, it was known as the for any reason view, and it was a view held by many of the leading rabbis of the time. And in essence, Jesus' reply, it shifts their, the Pharisees' thinking. It shifts, and he gets them to think back to the very first, first love story. Right at the start of Genesis, the first love story. Look at verse 4. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.27, he's quoting. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, verse 24, he's quoting. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So this here, it is the first love of human history. It is the first love ever between two people, the love between Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, take, take the bit that, where, where Jesus says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That bit, Genesis 2, 24. Just think about that bit for a moment. Adam didn't have a father and mother, did he? Adam did not have a father and mother. So the writer of Genesis, when the writer's writing Genesis, he puts this verse in to teach us who are reading it. And I would say that this verse, it is, if you like, the blueprint of so much of what the Bible teaches us about marriage, because Jesus is quoting it here in Matthew 19, and then Paul, he also quotes it uh, when he's speaking about husbands and wives and marriage in Ephesians verse five, in chapter 5. So what does this verse, what does it tell us about Jesus' view of marriage? Four things, I think. Firstly, it tells us that marriage is about forming a new family unit. It's about forming a new family unit. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, leave the old family unit, they'll leave, and then they'll cleave to someone new. So not doing what I did in our first year of marriage. Uh, I was a bit of a mummy's boy, and I'd sort of constantly phone up my mother to ask my mother for opinions on things before asking Susanna for her opinions. It was a disaster. It was wrong. I was stupid. Second... Um, thank you. I'm not supposed to laugh at that. Um, second, um, marriage, marriage is the context for sex. Marriage is the context for sex. The order is that the man and the woman be united as husband and wife, and then the two become one flesh. They have sex. Sex is to be in the context of marriage. 
In fact, if you, I don't know one of you thought this before, but actually intimacy always goes with commitment in the Bible. Just think for a moment, how would Jesus Christ feel if you prayed a prayer like this? Jesus, I want to know greater intimacy with you. Jesus, I want you to fill me with your spirit. Jesus, I, I want you to lead me. I want you to love me. I want intimacy with you. But Jesus, I don't want any commitment. Jesus, I don't want to forsake all others and follow you alone. Jesus, I want to be able to make my own decisions all of the time. I don't want you getting in the way too much. It would be an offensive prayer, wouldn't it? Intimacy and commitment, they are always connected. And if it goes that way in our relationship with God, why would it be any different in romantic relationships? Sex, intimacy, is to be in the context of marriage commitment. That's Jesus' view. Third, marriage is heterosexual. Now, I know that saying that, I am going headlong into a massive contemporary debate about same-sex marriage. And so I just ask you just to notice what Jesus says here. Jesus joins two quotes in Genesis 1 and 2. So he quotes, in verse 4, he quotes Genesis 1, 27. It says, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And Jesus joins that statement of humanity as male and female in Genesis 1, 27 with the blueprint for marriage in Genesis 2, 24, which he quotes in verse 5. See, Jesus didn't need to quote Genesis 1, 27, that the Creator made them male and female. He didn't need to do that. That quote, it is surplus to requirements unless Jesus wants to show that marriage is always between male and female, one man and one woman. So whilst personally, personally, I think it is correct for the state to define the rights of people cohabiting in different forms of relationships, including civil partnerships, so that same-sex couples have the same rights as married couples, I do not think that Jesus gives us the freedom to redefine marriage, which he has said is something that takes place between one man and one woman. And then fourth, marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. So verse 6, Jesus says, So that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And I always find, when I'm, whenever I'm taking a wedding, obviously I've taken quite a few weddings in my time, and I always find one of the most sort of powerful bits of a wedding is the bit after I've declared the couple husband and wife. I've declared them husband and wife, and then I ask them to give me both of them their right hands, and I hold their right hands together, and I hold their hands up, and I say, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Quoting verse 6, what Jesus says there that marriage is for life. Now, when it comes to divorce and remarriage, Jesus says here it is certainly not the for-any-reason school of divorce. But it does seem that divorce is permitted in certain cases, such as in verse 9, uh, in terms of marital unfaithfulness, when there's been sexual immorality. So it's permitted divorce, but it's never desirable. Divorce is never the best option. It's never the optimal solution because marriage is for life. So that's quite a lot of stuff. That is Jesus' view, I believe, as we look at these verses, Jesus' view of marriage. What about Jesus' view now of singleness? 
Okay, so the disciples, they, if you look at verse 10, they, they come to Jesus in verse 10, and they say, well, if marriage is for life, if you can't just sort of dispose of your wife for any reason, then maybe it's better to stay single. And Jesus says that's true for some people. He says it's better for some people not to get married. Now, for those that don't know, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated, as sadly happened to some slaves in royal courts in those days. And in, in this bit, the verse 12, there are three groups in verse 12 of which commentators have written loads and loads about, about what Jesus is actually meaning by each of those different three groups. Now, it would take them too long, and I don't totally know, uh, to go into all the options. But the main thing here that is clear is this, I think. Some of those three reasons for not getting married are involuntary but some are voluntary. So if you look at the third category right at the bottom, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They choose to do it. It's voluntary. And when we think today in a different cultural context, though there aren't so many people getting castrated, thank the Lord, uh, when we think today in our context, there are all sorts of reasons for it. But there is still that same overall division, the voluntary single and the involuntary single. So in terms of voluntary singleness, I think of someone I know who chose to be single for a number of years uh, rather than looking for a spouse so that they could care for their sick parents. That's voluntary single. But then there are also many, many people who have certainly not chosen to be single and they would dearly, dearly, deeply love to be married. The involuntary single. And so here's the thing that I think this passage mainly teaches us when it comes to us understanding Jesus' view on singleness. It's this, that in terms of their status, single people are complete. Single people are not lacking. Sometimes married people can refer to their spouse, and I'll admit I've done this at times, sometimes married people can refer to their spouse as their other half, as though as single people they were both halves, and they've been completed, they've been made whole by their spouse. But that's not true. The picture from this verse in Genesis is that marriage is two whole people coming together to create one new whole. Two become one. So single people are no less whole people for not being married. They are no less complete And sometimes, particularly in Christian circles, people see marriage as a good thing to be lauded and singleness as a problem. And the solution to the problem of singleness is for the person to get married. But that's not right. Singleness has positives and problems. Being married has positives and it has problems. And if anything, in places in Scripture, singleness is seen to be the superior option, this sort of picture of single-minded devotion to God. You know, nobody ever said of Mother Teresa, if only she'd met her husband, that would have completed her, did they? But we do need to recognize this, that being single as a Christian doesn't mean the same as being single for other people, because being single, if we hold to the biblical view of marriage and singleness, it means being celibate. The single Christian is not sort of free and available for all sorts of sexual encounters. But but more than that, more than the sort of the challenge of lack of sex, there can be the pain for women, but also for men, of not having children. And then, more broadly still, the challenge of a lack of a loving, close friendship. So in terms of their status, single people, they are complete. They're not lacking. 
But in terms of how single people can feel themselves, and indeed, in terms of how other people can make them feel, they can feel incomplete. They can feel lacking, and that can be deeply painful. And that is why for for single people, but actually just as much for married people, it is right to emphasize the importance of a loving Christian community. You know, amongst us here this morning, we will have people here who are finding singleness a very lonely place. But we will also have people, and I know because I've spoken to people in our church family that this is the case, they're finding marriage a very lonely place. They say that the most lonely people in the world are not single people, but those who are in struggling marriages. And part of that loneliness, part of that pain is exacerbated for single people and for married people when we do life as isolated individuals, when we do life as isolated married couples, and we don't benefit from the wonder of the wider Christian family. We are all built for community. And community is not sort of the runners-up prize for singles. All of us. All of us, we need to do our singleness and our marriages in the context of Christian community, the body of Christ. The gospel creates a bond with other believers, you and me, that makes the church into the Christian's ultimate family. And so here is the real clincher for us all. For every single one of us here, whatever our relational status, whether we are content in that status or whether we are discontent, this is the clincher. Who is the first love of our heart? Right now, for each one of us, who is the first love of our heart? And most problems for single people, and most problems for married people, they come when Jesus is not the first love in our heart. Let me just try and explain this by giving you two two examples. First example is Susanna and me. Uh, We've been married 16 years, and our first year of marriage was full of arguments, okay? Some people, when they get married, their first year of marriage is bliss. It's like an extended honeymoon. Lucky them is all I can say. It wasn't that for us, okay? Um, We would both say that it was the toughest year of both of our lives, our first year of marriage. And I remember a time when we'd had a big argument where there'd be shouting, there'd been slam doors, that kind of thing. And I remember just looking at Susanna. And I saw in her eyes such rage, such anger, such hurt. And I just wept. And I remember thinking, surely marriage shouldn't be like this. And as I've reflected since on that first year of marriage, I think the reason it was like that was above all because of the first love in my heart as a single person. Because the first love of my heart as a single person was not Jesus. But actually, the first love in my heart was Susanna. Or or possibly more accurately, the first love in my heart was my idealized image of being happily married to my idealized version of Susanna. So, you know, sort of beautiful and interesting. Tick. Godly and generous. Tick. Always laughs at my jokes. No, she doesn't. (laughs) Always agrees with my view on things. No, she doesn't. Never challenges my sinfulness and my selfishness. No, not with, without no sin herself. No, she's, got, she's sinful. And so what happened as we got married? When Susanna didn't measure up to all my unreasonable expectations, when she thought things different from me, when I felt she didn't perfectly fulfill the idealized view I had of her, I got cross and I sulked. 
Susanna's wonderful, but she's not Jesus. And so as I discovered in our first year of marriage, if we put our love first and foremost in a person, it won't be long before we feel let down. And if you work that out quicker than I did, then it'll be a huge help for you, whether you're a single person or a married person. Second couple of, uh, example is a couple in our church um, who are here this morning, an amazing couple, Ken and Charlie. Ken and Charlie have been uh, together uh, for 27 years, but they've only been married for the last eight of those years. And those 27 years, in all sorts of ways, have had some messy and complicated times. But eight years ago, Ken and Charlie came to faith in Jesus, and they decided to get married. And the last eight years, they've been a time of them growing together as husband and wife, and also a time of them growing together in their, in their faith in Jesus, and the last three or four years as part of this church family here at HGC. And just uh, eight days ago, um, they renewed their wedding vows right here. I was here with them as they renewed their wedding vows, and it was just such an amazing day as they celebrated all that God had been doing in them over the last 27 years. And during that service, I recounted in the address at a time a few months ago when uh, Susanna and I had asked Ken and Charlie if we could interview them during a, a recent marriage preparation course. So this marriage preparation course a few months ago, we had 33 engaged couples here, and I was interviewing, and Susanna and I were interviewing Ken and Charlie. And they, they were absolutely brilliant. They were totally comic and entertaining. And they, sort of, they were absolutely brilliant. But one of the things that most stuck in my mind was something Ken said. He said this. He said, as I have come to love Jesus more, so I have found that I love Charlie more. As I have come to love Jesus more, so I have come to love Charlie, his wife, more. You see, when we put Jesus first, first in our heart, we are better able to enjoy the positives of marriage when we are married. And equally, when we put Jesus first, first in our heart, we are better able to enjoy the positives of singleness when we're single. And that is because, finally, because of the first love of Jesus. The first love of Jesus. Because as much as it is wonderful to know how much you are loved by one other special person romantically, the most crucial thing for all of us, whoever we are, is to know how much we are loved by Jesus Christ. Because no human can ever perfectly fulfill all our need for love all of the time. But Jesus Christ can, and he does. Human marriage, it will not be in heaven. And yet the Bible starts with a wedding day in Genesis 2 that we've just looked at. And it finishes with a wedding day in Revelation 19, a wedding day between us and Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate spouse. He is the only one that actually does complete us. Because he first loved us, and he alone perfectly loves us, as no human can do. Our relational status, your relational status, it's important, but it is not of primary importance. We are all created primarily to live for our first love, Jesus, the one who first loved us.